You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Maidens who die of their wounds are called false virgins. always known what you are to be. Strong, clever, capable, beyond desire, beyond reproach. Since the moment your mother looked into your eyes and spoke your name, her voice filled with reverence. Athena, my daughter, one day you will lead armies. One day you will rule the world. Since that moment, all you've done has been in service to her or to your father, your father who has the emotional intelligence of a mayfly. He looks at you with both awe and fear. You sprang from his head, the product of his worst headache. He thinks he understands women, so he thinks he can understand you. But the way he looks at you, the way his eyes wander over your face, trying with great difficulty to work out what is going on behind your eyes, makes you wonder if he has ever understood anything. When he suggests you spend time with Triton, that you become his foster daughter. You understand the truth that he will not speak. He is afraid of you. He cannot stand the way your eyes follow him, the way you know him, how you know what he will do before he does it, how you understand his moods better than he does. He cannot stand your eyes. They haunt him, and they should. You have never told him what you are looking for when you stare into his face. You are looking for any trace of your mother the woman he swallowed to prevent a prophecy, the woman who raised you and who is imprisoned forever in this fearful man. You are always looking at him to see any trace of her, but you are only too happy to be away from him. Triton is not Zeus, and his lands are not yours, but they are not without their own beauty. At first, you are homesick for your brothers and sisters, for your father's halls, but then you see her. You have never felt this way before. She is strong, a skilled warrior. She holds a spear and sword as if she were born for battle. When you fumble with your spear and you are clumsy with your heavy sword, she does not laugh at you. Instead, she stands behind you. She helps you adjust your angle to better grip your sword and spear. She holds you, her hands rough and calloused. She smells like leather and sunshine and lemons. And when her arms are around you, you forget everything else. You could lose yourself to this woman, but she thinks of you only as a hostage from Olympus. For months, you pretend to struggle with skills that come naturally to you, forcing her to show you again and again how to stand, how to hold your weapons, how to parry and thrust. You are certain she must think you the clumsiest of all the gods, and you are happy to let her continue thinking this as long as she keeps touching you. It is late afternoon. Both of you are sweaty and tired from hours of practice when she lowers her helmet. Her dark curls fall around her face and she smiles. Are you ready to stop pretending to struggle with your swordplay? Are you ready to ask me for what you really want? Her voice is low and husky and her eyes are dark with desire. Is this love? 
Is this the madness that Aphrodite unleashes with wild abandon? Your heart is beating too fast, and there is a heat at the center of your body. You don't know if you can stand it, if you finally ask her for what you want. You don't know if you can survive her answer. I'm Jen McManamy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. And we're back this week with a new entry in our Gender Rebels of Greek Mythology series. Today, we're looking at the story of Athena and Pallas. And before we get started, this is probably the most fan fiction episode we've ever done. I mean, it, it is, but we really wanted to get it in there because it is about two queer women and we just needed some more of that in this series. And the reason this is the most fan fiction-y is because there is very little known about Pallas and Athena and their relationship. So we're going to be using some textual evidence to fill in some very big blanks. But stay with us because what this story has to tell us about women, particularly martial women, is worth a bit of well-informed fan fiction. So, we all know the story of Athena's birth, right? I'm just going to give us a quick overview for anyone who doesn't know it. Because literally, I wrote the book on this. We have a book called Women of Myth coming out in February of 2023, and there is an entry on Athena, and I wrote it. Illustrated by Sarah Richard. It's awesome. (laughs) And there's an illustration of Athena, and it's one of my favorite illustrations of her ever. But let me get back to the story. So, according to most sources... Athena, goddess of war and strategy and the heroic endeavor and also weaving, was the daughter of Zeus and Matus. Matus was a titaness and a goddess of wisdom. A prophecy stated that any child Matus gave birth to would have the ability to overthrow their father. I feel like every third child that somebody gives birth to that's a child of a god has that prophecy attached to them. It's very common. Do you know what it is? And I think it's really fascinating. Because it's such a human fear to be putting onto gods. Like, it's this idea, as humans, we're going to get older and our children are going to surpass us. And one day, like, we're going to go from being the young person in charge to being the person who needs to be cared for. Or if you're a ruler, like, overthrown by the next generation. It's so human. And you can see how humans are projecting that back onto gods. Because if you're immortal, like, what do you care? Yeah, that's a really good point. And it is true that this is the lot of mortals. We're all going to be surpassed by our children someday if we have children. Those of us who don't get to skip out on this. But it's all right. Our pets will eat our bodies. It's fine. I look upon that future without fear. (laughs) I mean, my dog would probably not figure out how to do it and just be like, I guess I I starve too. (laughs) Nobody made me dinner tonight. My cat looks at me all the time like I'm just biding my time. (laughs) That's because cats are clever and my tiny dog walked into a door today. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on. (laughs) So Zeus, who learned about parenting from his own dad, who ate all of his brothers and sisters in their childhood, decided to pull a Kronos, that's Zeus's dad, Zeus's dad is Kronos, and swallow Matus whole. Swallowing Matus whole didn't actually kill her. She just hung around inside Zeus's insides. And she gave birth to Athena in there, and she raised Athena in there. It's, it's a weird scene. Until one day, it was time for a fully grown Athena to leave the nest, by which we mean Zeus's body. I don't know testicles. I did not write testicles into this script at all. Like, I'm assuming she's living somewhere in his either maybe like his belly, large intestines, or brain. I don't know. There is some myths where Zeus like essentially tricks Matus into transforming into a fly and then he's like I remember having this chat with somebody who wanted to do like a trans version of some god or goddess. I forget. We were talking about this and they were like, well, if this is a, a trans feminine character, there was some question. I want them to also give birth. I guess that wouldn't work. And I was like, have you seen how the gods reproduce? Like, yes, it can. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like Zeus birthed somebody out of his head. His testicles and Hera reproduces asexually sometimes. Like. That's actually pretty queer, too. The entirety of Mount Olympus pretty much can reproduce not tied to their gender the way we traditionally see it. Yeah, I would say the thing with Zeus is he's not reproducing asexually in any of these cases. In each of these cases, there was a woman involved and a child involved that he just so happens to, like, 
swallow or incubate after he burns the mother to death. I mean, I wouldn't call that sexual. <laughs> yeah, whereas like Hera actually in some of the mythology reproduces Hephaestus literally on her own. She makes the life without any help from Zeus. So like there is a bigger creation power that she has as opposed to Zeus who He's the weird man womb, although he's not actually a womb for Athena. She is still born from her mother inside his head. He's kind of the meta womb, though. She's still in there until she's it's time to be birthed. But she's still birthed from her mother first and then Zeus. That's what I'm saying. She has two births. Like he's like the meta womb. And he's kind of a second womb for Dionysus, too, if you think about it. Absolutely. I'll agree with that. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, like, he didn't, like, produce them on his own. There was a woman involved in that creation. Right, he still requires a woman somehow in his reproductive cycle. Whereas in some stories of Hera and the myth of Hephaestus, if Zeus isn't the father, Hera literally creates him on her own. Anyway, like we said, uh, Zeus had decided to swallow Metis whole. This did not kill Metis. She just hung out inside Zeus's insides until she gave birth to Athena inside the meta-womb of Zeus, raised her inside Zeus, and then one day, it was time for a fully grown Athena to leave Zeus's body. And on that day, Zeus had an awful headache that could only be cured by his son Hephaestus, essentially splitting his head open. I mean, we've all had a headache that bad, right? Like, that you're just like, Hephaestus, please split my head open and end my pain. I mean, whew. So Hephaestus essentially splitting Zeus's head open, and out popped Athena. Now, most stories stop there, with Athena being fully formed, totally brilliant, aware of all things, and just being a badass. And all the other stories we read about Athena are essentially about her adult life as a goddess, mostly fucking shit up for other women like Medusa and Arachne, helping out heroes, looking at you, Odysseus, and becoming the patron goddess of Athens, all that stuff. That's the short version of things, obviously. But the point we're trying to make here is, that we don't get a lot of origin stories about Athena. We don't hear about her childhood. We don't even know if she had a childhood. Like, what was it like growing up as a goddess? And we do have, you know, kind of childhood stories or, you know, younger stories about other gods like Dionysus and Artemis and Hermes and Heracles, who isn't technically a god, but... Ah, you are wrong. He becomes a god at the end of his life. He, much like Ariadne, he does. Oh, that's a good point. Anyway, so Athena is just apparently a fully formed adult straight from Zeus's forehead who does adult things. She's never a child. She's always an adult. She's always fully formed. Right? Well, <laughs> not exactly. There is one story about this one time that Athena wasn't quite the fully formed adult. Instead, she's a young woman, but she's not a child. And she's also not the stern, wise grown-up that we always see her depicted as. In this story, she's a young woman, probably on the cusp of adulthood, late teens, something like that. According to some myths, while Athena was a teenager, maybe, she was a somewhat fully formed goddess who still needed to learn things. As always, the timeline is real fuzzy here. At this time, she was entrusted into the care of Triton. According to some sources, Triton lived with his family in Libya, North Africa. Triton had a daughter, a nymph called Pallas. Pallas and Athena were about the same age, and they had all the same interests, which were, at this point, mainly each other. <laughs> Athena and Pallas became instant besties. Athena loved Pallas. They were inseparable. Athena and Pallas were both in training to become martial women. They were taught the military arts and strategies, and they were badass warriors, sparring partners. They were competitive and pushed each other to become better fighters. And while the myths never tell us this exactly, they could have been lovers. I believe they definitely were lovers because I think it should be canon. I'm telling you it's canon. Athena loved Pallas and Pallas loved Athena. Pseudo Apollodorus in the Bibliotheca 3... It's Apollodorus, not Apollo. <laughs> Wait, what did I say? You said Pseudo-Apollodorus. I was like, no, did I spell it wrong? It should be Apollodorus. Anyway, Pseudo-Apollodorus in the Bibliotheca 3, which is a late source written in the 2nd century AD, tells us the story of Athena and Pallas. Is this like the only place where this story is told, Jen? Well, according to the source of Theoi.com, it is. <laughs> is it probably on vases and other artworks from the time? Yes, it is. Yeah. So we're going to quote the entire entry here from Pseudo Apollo 
Apollodorus, because it is very short. So, quote, They say that after Athene's birth, she was reared by Triton, who had a daughter named Pallas. Both girls cultivated the military life, which once led them into contentious dispute. As Pallas was about to give Athene a whack, Zeus skittishly held out the Aegis, so that she glanced up to protect herself, and thus was wounded by Athene and fell. Extremely saddened by what happened to Pallas, Athene fashioned a wooden likeness of her, and round its breast tied the Aegis, which had frightened her, and set the statue beside Zeus and paid it honor. So let's break this down for just a second. Athena and Pallas were sparring, or in this version they're, like, fighting, really fighting, and we've seen the story go both ways. Zeus is watching the fight, and he's like, I cannot believe this, but Athena is going to lose to Pallas. I cannot let this happen. He's being a helicopter parent. Yeah, and also honor is at stake, man. Cullen, can we have an honor is at stake, please? Honor is at stake. Thank you, Cullen. <laughs> So anyway, so Zeus sees this happen. He's being a total helicopter parent, and he flashes his Aegis, which definitely sounds quite dirty. Please stop it, Zeus. Put it back. Put that back in your tunic. In this one instance, it's not dirty. I know. (laughs) What is it? What is an Aegis? Please tell me, because that is something Zeus would do. Essentially, an Aegis is kind of like a shield made out of an animal skin. So he flashes his shield made of an animal skin, which is definitely not a euphemism for anything genital-wise. It is not, because Athena also has an Aegis, and lots of people have Aegis. And to be under the protection of an Aegis in the ancient Roman Empire meant you were under the protection of someone's shield. Oh, interesting. I know, I went down an Aegis rabbit hole. So looking at it that way, Zeus flashing his Aegis is saying, Athena is under my protection and nobody can fuck with her. He's like, Dad, I'm just playing with my friend. God, why did you do this? Put your ages away. God, Dad, don't you get it? I'm pretending to suck at swordplay so that she'll wrestle me to the ground and then we can roll around in the grass and make out. God, stop watching, you perf. Stop it. I mean, I guess it's not as bad as what you did to my half-sister Artemis. That time she had a girl that she was in love with. Zeus, being your dad, watching you hang out with your girl crush is not a good scene. Like, I hate to take it there, but I'm sorry we already took it there. If you're curious about that, we talk about Artemis and Callisto in our Wolves of Wolf Mountain episode. And I think we also talk about it in Queer Women. The Aegis might have been also metaphorical. It might have actually been his thunderbolt or something to do with a storm because Zeus was a sky god. I couldn't find the original Latin, so I couldn't translate it exactly or break it down. But I've seen it referenced that it could also mean something like Zeus's shield or thunderbolt. Whatever it was, for a change, Jenny, it wasn't sexual. And I know that is a massive shocker. And it is out of character. Yeah. So Athena catches Pallas off guard and winds up killing her friend. And we've seen the falling narrative, as mentioned here, you know, where Athena just kind of knocks Pallas down and that kills her. And then there's another version of the story where she accidentally, whoops, runs Pallas through with a spear. But both stories end the same way, Athena killing her friend. And I will say that this is something that does seem to happen in the Greek mythology a lot. It's almost like people were just accidentally killing their besties all the time and their family members. Patroclus gets exiled for this as a kid, right? Like this happens kind of a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, Patroclus loses his temper and, like, kills a kid when he is little for, for I can't remember, I think he lost at dice or something. But this happened a lot, and I think it's super important, and that's why we see it in the mythology. That's why we see this even happening with gods. And we see Dionysus or Apollo accidentally kill their lovers at least once or twice. They're both male lovers. Like, this happens a lot in queer relationships, but it also happens in street relationships, too. I mean, it is kind of like, I guess with the queer relationships, it is kind of like a very early version of the kill your gaze trope. I would say absolutely, but in mythology, we, we see it happen all the time. Uh, in Greek mythology, we see it happen all the time. Like, you've got lots of people who are straight who are also killed. I think in this instance, it's less about your sexual orientation and more about how cheap life was and how easily, again, this is mortals, I think, projecting their feelings on life onto their gods, which is like, you could kill your best friend or your best friend could be killed with an errant discus or spear at any point in time this person you love can be taken from you and generally only 
mortals get killed when they're the lovers of gods. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting. Like I think that the other underlying thing here is how much more powerful a god was. So if you are sleeping around with or just close to a god, that is, you know, they don't know their own strength, especially if they're like an immature god like Athena in this story. But also, you know, some sometimes they do know their own strength and they do this anyway, so look out. It also, like you said, speaks to the dangers of the ancient world. I mean, people got killed because they scratched a a hand somewhere and then that got infected. Like, it was super easy to die back then. So I bet people got killed in sword practice and got hit by errant discuses. Like, their sports were dangerous. I mean, one of their sports was jumping a bull. Not jumping it sideways, jumping it long ways. (laughs) Like, that's a wild sport that, you know, I'm sure a lot of people didn't make it through. I mean, I probably wouldn't make it through. So before we break down this myth even further, I wanted to discuss what the name palace means. There were quite a few palaces in mythology. Both male and female is a non-gendered name, which I found really fascinating. So either the name palace comes from the word palo, meaning one who brandishes a spear or a warrior, because at this time, all warriors fought with spears in some capacity. So anyone who had a spear would have been a warrior. Or it comes from the word palicus, which is another word for young woman or maiden. Both of these fit the epithet of the nymph palace. So it's difficult to tell which root word we're talking about here. And both of these words would go on to describe Athena in one way or another. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So that's what we know about Athena and Pallas. That's literally the entire story, not including artwork. That's it. That's all we know about these two goddesses or this goddess and nymph. But what can we infer from the story that is hidden between the lines? Well, number one, Athena loved Pallas. She loved her in a way that she felt compelled to honor her. And how did she honor her? She put their names together so that she became Pallas Athena, with the name Pallas going before her own name, Athena. Kind of like a hyphenated last name after you get married, like a McMenemy Stone. You know what? And I was thinking about this. Um... The love of Pallas and Athena and its queerness. I kind of feel like they could have been lovers. That could be between the lines. And that is quite a bit of fan fiction that we're writing. But that interpretation exists. But, you know, even if they aren't lovers, there is a queerness to these really intense same-sex friendships. 
There was a whole discussion going around the interwebs about the queerness of same-sex friendships, like really intense same-sex friendships. I believe when the last Anne of Green Gables movie came out, uh, series came out, I'm bisexual. I've talked about that a little bit on the podcast. I don't think a lot, but I've had a lot of very, very intense female friendships like that, that those friendships made sense to me when I when I started reading that discourse about that. Totally. And I also think particularly amongst adolescent girls, which you're looking at, that's what Pallas and Athena would be. You have these intense queer relationships between girls. That's a really um, appropriate reading of what we're seeing here. Yeah, like even if they are not physically involved with each other, their feelings for each other are so intense that they could be interpreted as romantic or could be felt as romantic. I totally agree. And I think whether or not they were ever romantically involved, the love they had for each other was intense. And this is one of the few places in mythology that we ever see that Athena has really said is having loved someone or cared about someone to this degree. Yeah. So two, the second thing we can interpret between the lines is that Athena loved Pallas so much. This is actually not between the lines. This is just straight up in the mythology. Athena loved Pallas so much that she created a wooden statue that captured her likeness called the Palladium. This statue was extremely famous in the ancient world, particularly in ancient mythology, but also weirdly in history, right? Like it shows up in history. That's kind of what I was trying to get at. Like it was famous not just in mythology, but also history. Yeah, it was said to exist in texts that we consider historical today. The Palladium was said to have stood in Troy in its own temple or shrine. And while the statue remained in Troy, the entire city was under Athena's protection and could not be sacked. Of course, we all know how the Trojan War ended with um, that big horse and lots of <clears throat> sacking, shall we say? Sacking seems like the right word. So Jenny, if the Trojans lost the war, what happened to the power of the Palladium? Well, funny you should ask that, Jen. There are several stories about the Palladium. Are we calling it the Palladium or the Palladium? I think it's the Palladium. Palladium, Palladium? Tomato, tomato? <laughs> I really do think it's a tomato, tomato thing, because I feel like I've heard it called Palladium over here, but I don't know that that's 100% right. I, I think I just made my own pronunciation up, so don't tell people that's how you say it. I just made it up. I'm just going to continue to say it wrong. So there are several stories about the Palladium. There is a story about how Diomedes and Odysseus happened to sneak into Troy and steal the Palladium. Odysseus tried to kill Diomedes and take the statue for himself after, after they stole it, but he failed. And there's a whole slapsticky myth about that, which I'm not getting into. Because the point is that once the statue was stolen, it was literally only a matter of time before the city of Troy fell. It was destiny. Yeah, and this makes a kind of sense, right? Both Odysseus and Diomedes were favorite heroes of Athena. She definitely had a soft spot for them, Odysseus in particular. Why Athena? She was always giving Odysseus lots and lots of help, more help than he deserved. <laughs> I've got real problems with Odysseus. He's not my problematic fave. So Athena was on the Greek side during the Trojan War, but she couldn't allow the city of Troy to be sacked as long as her beloved monument to Pallas was still within its walls. So she helped the trickiest of heroes steal the statue and get it safely into Greek hands. Of course, my problem with this story, this, this myth, is that if this really happened somewhere in the annals of mythology, why the hell didn't Odysseus and Diomedes just, I don't know, open the gates of Troy and let the Greek army into the city? Maybe because if they walked into the city with the Palladium still there, the Palladium would zap them with its laser eyes, Jen. <laughs> I don't know. It just feels like there's a big plot hole here. Like my brain is trying to work it out. But also a wizard did it. A wizard did it. But I'm also very aware that's how mythology works. And it has to work that way because the story was told and retold and changed uh, in oral tradition. Anyway, now that my brain has recentered itself. The other story that I know of about the Palladium in Troy has to do with the Palladium remaining in Athena's temple in Troy. During the sacking and during the fall of the city, the prophetess Cassandra fled to the statue and threw her arms around it, seeking its protection. Ajax found her and pulled her from the statue and put her into the booty line. Sometimes trigger warning, he rapes her or she is raped at this point in time. The actual thing occurs in Athena's temple. Athena is furious about this. 
the Palladium, and anyone who seeks the protection of the statue should be safe from violation. To punish the Greeks, she sends bad weather to scatter and sink their ships. If this is the case, it's nice to know that at one point in time, Athena really looked out for another woman because there are so many stories where she doesn't. Yeah, I would say this is rare. I would say that it kind of makes sense in this one instance she was she was able to enact that vengeance because what happened was not done by a god. A lot of times Athena is shitty to women because she's not allowed to necessarily go against other gods. So she has to punish someone for what's happened and she tends to punish the women. But in this instance, it's not other gods who have done it. It's men. And she's like, let me give you wrath. Yeah. I mean, that just makes me even angrier because the patriarchy is a piece of shit. Anyway, so the Palladium became so famous that it found its way to Rome and into Roman mythology and Roman history. Like, this is all stuff that appears in Roman history. There was allegedly a wooden statue in Rome that people thought was this statue that Athena crafted to, you know, commemorate her love palace. And that was at one point in the city of Troy. There is a myth that says that it was moved pre-sack of Troy. And according to the Aeneid, that fantastic epic poem filled with propaganda, the Palladium was carried to Rome by Aeneas, which makes a lot of sense as the Romans were super thirsty to make sure that everyone knew their heritage stretched all the way back to Troy. So who knows? This is all mythological pseudo-history. Yeah, so Aeneas existed in Greek mythology. Like, he's in the Iliad, he's in, the, he's in all that stuff. So he existed before the Aeneid. The Aeneid just sort of co-opted him and gave him an adventure. Well, right, but the part about Aeneas carrying the Palladium to Rome is in the Aeneid. It's not in the Iliad. No, it's not in the Iliad. It might be in other mythology that I don't know about, but it's definitely not in the Iliad. Yeah. According to the historical record, the Palladium stood in the Temple of Vesta in the Roman Forum for several hundred years. This is not Greek mythology now. This is like an actual statue that historical records say was there. So yeah, according to some tellings, it was kept in the Temple of Vesta in the Roman Forum, and it stood there for centuries. There are several stories that I found about how somebody went blind trying to drag the statue out of a fire, incidentally, Jen. One of those stories occurs in the Greek mythology. It's a guy named King Ilon of Ilios. He goes blind trying to drag the Palladium out of a burning temple. And there is another story that says that in ancient Rome, a consul was blinded when he tried to pull the Palladium out of the temple of Vesta, which was, I guess was on fire. There's a specific date. It's said to have occurred in 241 BC, and both Ovid and Pliny the Elder mention this occurrence. Did it really happen? I don't know. So there's mythology around people going blind, touching the statue to save it from a fire. Make of that what you will. Make of that what you will, but I'm assuming these were men. Cassandra definitely hugged that statue. She didn't go blind. Yeah, they were both men. The Palladium kept popping up all over the ancient world. Many cities and countries claimed that they had the original Palladium. Eventually, it got moved to Constantinople by Constantine the Great himself and entombed under the Column of Constantine to bring legitimacy to his new capital city. People wanted the protection imparted by Athena to whoever had the Palladium because, let's be honest, Athena is a badass goddess to have as your protector right? I would want her as my protector. She's clever. She's brave. She's got all that strategy. If I was founding a city or even just like a tiny little cabin in the woods like I have now, I'd want her as my protector, her and Dionysus. So are you saying that there were a lot of competing knockoff statues around that people were claiming were the original Palladium? I read that lots and lots of places claim they had the Palladium at different points in time. I don't necessarily think they were knockoffs. I think they legitimately were claiming they had the original. Yeah, but there's only one that could possibly be the original. It's all mythology anyway, so none of them is really the original invented by Athena because Athena didn't exist. So are you saying that these are all knockoffs? There were multiple palladiums. I'm not saying they're all knockoffs. All I'm saying is all these different places were like, we've got the original. No, we've got the original. And whether or not it was a case of it rested in the city for a point in time and then was moved somewhere else, I don't know. We don't know that much about, or I didn't find out that much about the course that the palladium took before it, it was allegedly in Rome in the Temple of Vesta and then in Constantinople. But what I did find really interesting was all these other places like to claim they had it. And it kind of reminds me of, this goes back to my Catholic 
school days of saints reliquaries where it's like, oh, we've got a bit of John the Baptist and we've got a bit of like this saint in our place. Yeah, but there were fake saints body parts all over the medieval world. Like people were faking the shit out of that stuff. So that's what makes me question like whether there were fake palladiums everywhere too. I mean, I wouldn't put it past people to make fake palladiums. I mean, why would you not? That's what I'm saying. Let's get back to the point of this. The point is the Palladium was hugely important throughout ancient Greece and Rome and the rest of the ancient world. And most importantly, it was a statue of one woman's love for another. Athena was never linked to another person or God or being with the word love again. She never even had any pets. She didn't even have a turtle. Athena was a patron goddess to many. She was a goddess of heroes, a goddess of cunning and cleverness, a goddess of skills and warfare. A lot of people looked up to her. But she's never again linked to anyone as being in love with them, as really even liking them much beyond sort of as human children that she gets to watch over on a weird reality TV show that is the Greek and Roman world. I don't know. It's true. Like, I wouldn't say, like, she loves Odysseus, but she loves the reality TV that is the Odyssey. Like, she's there for all 10 seasons of this bumbling dude trying to get home. So anyway, uh, like, she doesn't have any relationships with anyone else except Pallas. Pallas is the only person that we're told that Athena actually loved. We're told that she felt so much guilt and mourned her so greatly that she took the name Pallas as part of her own identity. Was it to assuage her guilt? Maybe. Was it as an act of purification to atone for her crime of accidental murder, which apparently everybody in the ancient world did at one point or another? Possibly. But Athena was a goddess, and nobody was making her take another goddess's name, and nobody was shaming her about this, because listen, everybody killed their brother back in the day. It's what people do their friend or you know whoever their lover back in the day especially if you're a goddess and you're involved with somebody who is not a deity everyone does it don't feel too bad that's why the oracle of delphi was so busy exactly i mean let's just not get into the whole heracles of it all i was gonna say two-thirds of her job was just meeting up purification to heracles who'd you kill this time dude And to other people who killed their friends and family. (laughs) Mostly Heracles. So Athena's choice here, Athena's choice to take Pallas' name here is what tells us the true nature of their relationship. Athena loved Pallas. I think that's pretty clear. Maybe she even loved her the way Iphis loved Ianthe, to bring it all the way back full circle. To quote Ovid, quote, But Iphis is in love without one hope of passion's ecstasy, the thought of which only increased her flame, And she, a girl, is burnt with passion for another girl. In one way to interpret this, unlike Iphis and Ianthe, Athena doesn't get her happy ending with her lover. So she shuts herself off for the rest of her mortal life. She is Pallas Athena, an Athena Paranthona. She cannot be overpowered by love or desire. Aphrodite, who fucks shit up for many of the gods and goddesses, cannot touch Athena. And Athena cannot be overpowered by war. She becomes as remote and cold as a distant star winking into the night. There was a time in her life for a few moments where she burnt brightly and the person she burnt for was Pallas. Without Pallas, Athena remains cold and distant, clever and cunning, and lacking in the warmth that she once felt as a lover and companion of Pallas. Athena is her own mistress, but at what cost? So before we leave the sad story of Athena and Pallas, I've got all the winners for us. <laughs> it is sad, but it is also fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the fan fiction makes it slightly sadder and adds more emotional heft to it. But it's still a sad story of Athena killing her friend in a, in a sparring match. It is kind of a bummer either way, sure. <laughs> exactly. So before we leave this, I wanted to look at something that Herodotus tells us about the two goddesses. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. 
Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Herodotus has a lot to say about Athena and Pallas. And how the goddesses were worshipped. Pallas is is not a nymph, but a goddess in this telling. Well, she's a nymph. I have upgraded her to goddess. I'm sorry. The nymph and the goddess. So according to Herodotus, there was a festival to Athena and Pallas held in Libya. So this quote that we're about to read you is from Herodotus Histories. Herodotus is a much earlier source than pseudo Apollo. Apollodorus. Oh my God. You're a hot mess. Pseudo-Apollodorus, I cannot talk. Herodotus is a much earlier source than Pseudo-Apollodorus, who gave us that story about Pallas and Athena that we read you before. So Herodotus is writing in the 5th century BC, maybe about 700 or so years earlier. This source might explain how or why the myth of Pallas, the Palladium, and Athena spread so widely throughout the ancient world. Quote, On the tribes of Libya. So uh, Herodotus is talking about two different tribes who celebrate this festival. Their names are a bit difficult to pronounce. Macaulays. Next to the Macaulays are the Ozians and the Macaulays. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing all of this. These are the two tribes that celebrate this festival. Separated by the Triton. Is the Triton a river? It is like a saltwater lake. Okay, so these two tribes live on the shores of Lake Tritonis. The Macaulays wear their hair long behind, the Ozians in front. They celebrate a yearly festival of Athena where their maidens are separated into two bands and fight each other with stones and sticks. Thus, they say honoring in the way of their ancestors that native goddess whom we call Athena. Maidens who die of their wounds are called false virgins. Let's just remember, they're getting bludgeoned with sticks and stones, literally. But they have to work in the slut-shaming. Mm-hmm. Maidens who die of their wounds are called false virgins. Before the girls are set fighting, the whole people choose the fairest maid and arm her with a Corinthian helmet and Greek panoply, to be then mounted on a chariot and drawn all along the lake shore. With what armor they equipped their maidens before Greeks came to live near them, I cannot say, but I suppose the armor was Egyptian, for I maintain that the Greeks took their shield and helmet from Egypt. That's super interesting. Is that true? I bet there are people who know about that better than I would. I bet there are. And part of the reason I wanted to include this quote from Herodotus is because it shows us, number one, that martial women were a part of ancient Greece and Rome, and women like Athena and Pallas probably existed. They weren't just the stuff of legends or the purview of goddesses and nymphs. So women who are martial women is what you mean. Well, and also women who are most likely queer, but we've talked about that before. I also love the fact that this quote tells us that Greek shields and helmets, according to Herodotus, most likely came from Egypt with some cultural exchange. I love the idea that Herodotus is like, there was cultural exchange people. I bet you could actually tell that by looking at various shields and spears that came from Egypt and seeing the similarities. I don't know anything about this. I have not done a deep dive in the history of various weapons, but I bet that research is out there. I bet it is. And I just, I love the fact that it is not just out there in modern research, but Herodotus is telling us the same thing. In this weird scene from Herodotus, we can see the bones of the myth of Pallas and Athena. Like in the myth, we have women fighting other women. Like in the myth, there are women who die in the fighting. This scene takes place in Libya, and so does the myth of Pallas and Athena. Remember, Triton was fostering Athena in Libya. Yeah, and all of this occurs on Lake Tritonis, Tritonis, on the Triton Lake. And I bet in this situation with these two bands of girls fighting, there were girls who accidentally killed friends or perhaps even lovers. I bet that happened. It's almost like they're taking this tradition of this festival and using that as the foundation for this myth about Pallas and Athena. Like that myth tells us something ancient about how the goddess was worshipped at one time. I totally agree. 
There's also something called false virgins here. We cannot ignore the false virgins. Nope, we cannot. The idea that the girls who died of their wounds in these battles were somehow false virgins does, especially to us with our modern lens, reek of misogyny and the patriarchy. But I would argue that it also gives us a little bit of a glimpse maybe into a possibility that some of these women were lovers of each other. They were possibly queer women. Bear in mind that today's definition of virgin as somebody who's never had penetrative sex or perhaps any sex isn't necessarily what the ancients meant by that word. In ancient Greece, it could also just mean an unmarried woman. Were queer women false virgins, quote unquote, if they didn't sleep with men but did sleep with each other and stayed unattached to men? You know, maybe, and you also see that in the Callisto and Artemis myth, where Artemis basically has a nymph harem. We, again, we talked about this in Queer Women, and she's famously supposed to be a virgin, and that kind of got us down this path of like, well, we're all women who were described as virgins in the ancient world possibly getting it on with each other. I mean, I'd love to think so, maybe. It does kind of leave that open to that possibility, right? Yeah, and also some women were asexual, you know. Well, of course, women who were asexual also existed. I would also say that there weren't a lot of cases where women actually had the choice to not have sex, you know, because they'd be married off. I totally agree. And I am also just hands down here for Artemis's harem. <laughs> I, I believe that that existed. I'm sorry. Anyone who doesn't, you're wrong. Yeah, queer women existed. Asexual women existed. Women didn't necessarily get a chance to act on their sexual orientation in the ancient world a lot of the time because, you know, they could be married off against their will. Those who wound up working in temples that required virginity might not have been sent to those temples because that's what they wanted. It was because that's what their parents wanted for them. So either or wasn't always necessarily consensual. I would say probably realistically a lot of the time it wasn't. But queer sex, like sex with queer women That's like one of the few consensual acts that was ungoverned by the patriarchy that was done outside of the bounds of the patriarchy that was more likely to be consensual is is my take on it. And I mean, that's not taking into account consent shit that people in the ancient world had. But like, you know, it's a thought. (laughs) Absolutely. No, I totally agree with you. And I think it's a really interesting thought to have. I mean, with the exception of sort of like Erastes, Aramanos and grooming relationships, which we're putting to one side. To me, like you were saying, I think there is more consent allowed here because you're making a choice. And as we said, you don't you didn't always get to make a choice in who you married, particularly for women. You didn't always get to make a choice in whether or not you were going to be a priestess at a temple. But you did get to choose your female lovers sometimes. So anyway, um, this quote that we read you from Herodotus is kind of a little bit like the Palladium. It shows us how the love of two women traveled around the ancient Mediterranean. Maybe that love became sanded away, lost to time, and eventually the patriarchy. And that does make sense, because so much of Athena's actions and mythology and the mythology that's come down to us today, mainly with a classical lens, directly enforces the patriarchy. And we all know that classical Greece was building the patriarchy. Like, that was their big project at the time, right? It was. It was hugely their project. And a lot of the mythology around Athena is really tricky, because... Some people like to think of Athena as this like big feminist heroine. And I love her, but she does a lot of terrible things to women. She punishes women like Medusa for crimes that were committed against those women by other men. And it's difficult to really reconcile yourself to that with the Athena who you want to see. The Athena in palace, like the Athena who maybe is this strong, fierce person. Parts of Athena's identity are taken from essentially the victims of Athena. Like she's got eventually her Aegeus or her epic shield has Medusa's head added into it. And if you look at her shield, you're turned to stone. She takes Pallas's name. Is there an argument that Medusa takes these other bits of the women who she's kind of victimized to become a part of herself and become the ultimate symbol of the patriarchy? Sure. Do I necessarily think that's what's happening? No. I think maybe that's what's happening. I also think another thing that might be happening is Athena was appropriated as the symbol of the patriarchy. But there's an older tradition of Athena worship that was about martial women and it was about possibly queerness between women, you know, and I think that that is preserved in the palace and Athena myth if you know where to look. Exactly. If you know where to look and if you take into account that Herodotus quote, which is about martial women essentially having their own festival to Athena, 
I think there's an older, wilder, freer Athena who is not co-opted by the patriarchy, who existed and still exists if you know where to look for her. So I want to end this episode not on the darkest timeline. So let's stop for a minute and return to maybe a purer time, a time when the love of two women existed beneath the Libyan sun, when two women were allowed to spar together, to train together, and to share a life together. In another world, in another time, maybe they could have been the inspiration for a martial band of women called the Sacred Band of Pallas Athena. They did not get to live in that world, and neither do we. But we do get to see the ruins of their love in every statue of Athena and in the stories of the Palladium. So that's it for this week. (laughs) I promise our final gender rebel is not this sad. (laughs) I don't know. I thought it was really fascinating. I thought you did a good job with the episode. It's not, it it is kind of sad, but you know what? It's Greek mythology. What do you expect? Yeah. And we kind of covered the only ones that ended super happily already. So um, join us next week for whatever we're doing next. We're not quite sure. It'll probably be an interview. And we'd love to hear from you in the meantime. Please stop and say hello to us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan and on Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl. We have a Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash Ancient History Fangirl. Kick in a few bucks and you can get extra content. We do extra episodes on there, extra interviews, all kinds of things. And hopefully, you know, leave us a review, rate, subscribe, tell your friends. And thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.